All right, kids age three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids. That's what that slide says. You can barely read it, but that's what that slide says. Uh, for the rest of you, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to Luke 24. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. It's in your order of worship. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch on the back table. We'd love to give you. I think it's important for you to have one, uh, but it is there in your order of worship in case you need it. Um, or, you know what, uh, these days I can also say if you've got a device out in front of you, there are great Bibles that you can just download real quick. You could probably have it done before I even get into the scripture at this point, either uh, the ESV or something like that. You could, you could get one real quick. But turn it into Luke 24 if you can. Um, and before I get into this, let me say one thing. If you're new to Holy Cross, and by that I mean, like you've been coming, maybe this is your first week and you're like, dude, I'm in. Or, or maybe you're just wondering, like, what is this church and um, how do I get more involved, things like that. Give me about 10 minutes, 15 at most, right after service, downstairs in room 100, which is if you go out this door, down the stairs to your last room on the left, um, and I'll do, like we have this little thing, it's called New to Holy Cross, I'm just literally just tell you about 10, 10 minutes worth of stuff, head you out and let you know what your next steps are, okay? But, that's, but uh, I'd love to just kind of get a chance to, to meet you, talk to you a little bit, and help you know what to do next, um, because being a part of a church is more than just being a part of worship. And we would love to have you join us on mission. So, um, right after church. I'll remind you before we, before we end, but that's there. All right. So, last week we began a new series. Hopefully you were here for that. If not, uh, there's always the podcast, right? So, uh, it's called Reconsider. And what, what I said last week is that there are a growing number of people in our culture, in our population, here in this country especially, but in the West in particular, uh, who, are, who would identify as having no religious affiliation. They're called nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, right? Uh, and, and that many of these folks are leaving not just religion, but specifically Christianity behind. But what I argued last time is that um, what they're actually leaving isn't Christianity. It's like a version of Christianity. It's not actual Christianity. Uh, and, and so we need to reconsider some of these things. Last week we looked at the reality that when it comes to God, uh, people are rejecting God, but what they're rejecting isn't necessarily the God of the Bible, it's the God of our imaginations. And so maybe it's better if we talk about that and reconsider the God who's presented to us in the Bible. This week we actually turn to that place in particular. We turn to the Bible, another central concept. In Christianity. So if you have your place with the scriptures, whether it's in the Bible, on your bulletin, or on your device, if you'd stand, that's our habit here. Um, we're in Luke 24, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 27. This is God's word to us, friends. It is given for our good. So hear it in that way. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. 
And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb. They found the tomb just as the women had said, but they didn't see anything. And he said to them, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is God's word. Given so that we would flourish. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, no matter where we're at this morning, um, whether we've been a Christian for a long time or we're, we're still considering the claims, maybe, not, maybe we're just here because someone drug us here. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us engage in this time, that by your spirit you would open our hearts to see the great uh, culmination, the great um, resolution of the story of the world, Jesus Christ. And that as we lift him up, Lord, that you would draw all of us to yourself. We ask that you would do this for Christ's sake and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. That's more like it. You see, it weirds me out when I ask people to have a seat over Holy Cross East in Fisherville, and it's Wilson, and it's so silent, you can't ever... It's like, have a seat. I'm like, what just happened? Like, that's... I like the creaky. Uh, I'm used to it at this point. So, all right. Hey, let's be honest. The Bible is a strange book. We can't pretend that it's not. Uh, It is a very odd book. And and frankly, even if you're a Christian, can just kind of proclaiming and and saying out loud, maybe saying very loud that it's the word of God doesn't really help. If you don't think it's strange, simply read it to a child and wait for the questions to come, right? Questions that you'll be sitting there going like, I I don't know. See, many people who have walked away from Christianity, those who have become a nun, an N-O-N-E, have become so because there's something either they've read or more likely they've heard about in the Bible that they just don't like. It disturbs them. And some of the problem is exasperated in the fact that, especially if you were raised in the church, right, uh, there's this weird pressure that you probably feel that if anyone pulls out a Bible, you're supposed to understand it. I don't know if it's like by osmosis or just, I'm a Christian, that's what's supposed to happen with me. But because you feel the pressure to understand it, when you don't understand it, you don't feel the freedom to ask anyone anything. And so we all go around just pretending. But what happens when you can't pretend anymore? What happens when you read a blog that throws something off? Or you go into a college Bible class or have some talk show dude highlight a bunch of stuff that sounds an awful lot in in the Bible like contradictions. Awful lot. Or what happens when something is brought up that you didn't realize was in there and someone points you to chapter and verse that it is and all of a sudden you're thinking, I don't know what to do with that. What I want to do this morning is I want to name some of these things. I want to clarify some of them. And then I want to help us reconsider what this book is all about. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at this in two ways, right? We're going to look at what it means to reconsider our questions, and then we're going to look at what it means to reconsider the point of the whole thing. If that's helpful to you, great, take it out. If not, just leave it, because it's not that important. I just want you to be able to follow along. All right, let's start with reconsidering our questions. Let me see how churched you guys are. Okay? 
I'm going to say a phrase. I want you to finish it. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You ever heard that? The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. That sounds pious, doesn't it? It sounds so pious. It sounds like something a Christian should say and mean, right? Say with conviction. And maybe if you've heard that before, it's because that's the environment that you were raised in. Questions were raised. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. If I'm being honest with you, I think statements like that and the attitude that surrounds it are actually what creates the issue we're talking about this morning. Let me give you a for instance. Maybe you were raised in the church. You were taught that the Bible is central to the Christian faith. Perhaps you were even taught that it was infallible and inerrant, right? It's the Word of God, which are all things we believe here. Then you get to college and you take a Bible class where the prof tells you the Bible teaches a three story universe. You know, we walk here on the earth, heaven's in the clouds, and under the earth is where the darkness lives. And he goes, that shouldn't surprise you. Everybody in the ancient world thought exactly the same thing. The Bible is no different from any other ancient text, full of myth. Right? Or maybe he says that some of these things that the Bible talks about are simply impossible. Or they strike against what we know scientifically. Or how the stories that that are in there, especially in parts of the Old Testament, were created to justify the genocide of whole people groups. Or that the stories about Jesus were actually created uh, hundreds of years after Jesus died by the communities that believed in him to help them answer questions that they had at those times. Heard those things? I did. I was a religion major. Heard them all the time. Then you come home and you ask these questions to your parents or to your pastor, and they say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Which means that you bring your facts that you have just learned to someone, and they give you a faith that simply dismisses all of them instead of engaging with them. Hard to believe in that, isn't it? So what I want to do before we get to this passage that I think is going to help us go forward is I want to simply speak to two categories or questions of a, or, or objections that I have heard over the years, both from my time in ordained ministry and my time doing college ministry, that I think are probably going to, um, to help give voice to some of the things that maybe you're thinking of. Because my guess is if you haven't asked these questions yourself, you've at least heard them. Okay? Here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to pretend that there is nothing troubling in this book. I've read it. And if you don't think there's anything troubling in it, my guess is you haven't read it. There's lots that's troubling in it. It's actually one of the things I love about Christianity is that it gives you a Bible that's raw. In fact, I think it's rawer than most of us who read it. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's actually pretty cool. I'm also not going to pretend that there are easy answers to every objection, because that is silly and insulting to those of us who have questions. I'm not going to answer all the questions. I'm simply going to see if we can reconsider. Okay? So most questions that come up about the Bible come in two forms. The first is a question of history. And by that, what I mean is not only the history taught by the Bible, but the history of how the Bible came to be. 
right? But let's look first of, of the, the questioning of history in the Bible. And the first way that this is done is simply the fact, and it is a fact, that many of the stories that the Bible gives are scientifically problematic. Problematic, right? If you don't think they're problematic, I want you to think for a second. Can we just agree that none of y'all have ever seen a city's walls fall down when someone blew a trumpet, right? You've never seen water part so that there's dry ground in the middle when you lost your ball in the ocean. And it's like, oh, there it is. And you walk out to get it. And you've never seen a dead dude grill fish on a beach. Fair? Okay. As long as we can all agree that none of us have seen that, maybe we can agree that there are some problematic things in this. Now, before you get mad at me, uh, let me, let me just remember that we all just agreed that we never seen it, okay? Now, because of this, because of the things that there are a lot of these stories that seem problematic, the Bible is often dismissed, right? We just kind of dismiss it out of hand. But let me, let me bring up a reality. There is a difference between how we know things scientifically and how we know things historically, right? For instance, the way you do science is... And there are several scientists in the room, right? Some like professional scientists in the room. You, you create a hypothesis. You test the hypothesis using controlled variables, right? You can control all the variables to see if you get the same outcome over and over and over again. And if you do, then you can actually create a conclusion off of that. Scientific method, we all learned that in what? Third grade? Fourth? I don't know. History is done different. We know things in history not based on whether or not we can recreate events, Right? Prove to me scientifically the Battle of Gettysburg happened. Ooh. Hard to do, right? Hard to do because humans are very variable. (laughs) We don't play well in controlled environments, and things happen that are outside of controllable scenarios. Historic events can never be proved or disproved via science, which is not to say that science doesn't have something to say about the likelihood of something happening. It's just that you can't prove history scientifically. You have to judge it based on testimony. And so, to judge the Bible as untrue, right? Given that it is not, it is presenting to you testimony, to assume that it can't be true because it presents the God who created everything acting in history in ways that we cannot is simply assuming that the Bible is false because God isn't, doesn't exist. So because he doesn't exist, he would never do, he can't possibly do anything like that, therefore these things couldn't have happened. Listen, the people who wrote these stories down thought that what was happening was crazy. That's why they wrote them down. Right? If, if it were just normal, if they thought it was normal for dead dudes to grill fish on the beach, they wouldn't have wrote it because they're like, I mean, that happened last Thursday. So I mean, that's not a crazy event. That's Tuesday. Right? No, that, there's something crazy about this. That's the whole point. And so we have to engage the testimony on its own terms in the same way we would anything else. Okay? The second is this notion that the Bible is um, effectively legend. Most of us have been taught that, and that's, that's because on some level the Bible stories are fantastical. Right? Uh, dude gets swallowed by a fish and puked out three days later. And it was puke, by the way. Like, he didn't... I think we think of the fish open its mouth and Jonah just kind of came prancing out. No, no, no. Blah! Like, it's, 
We'll talk about that. We're doing Jonah next after this series, so we can talk about that later. But um, that doesn't happen. It seems rather fantastical. The problem is, if you've read legends and you've read the Bible, there are striking differences. And, and when I was growing up, I was big on legends. I loved Greek mythology. I loved, um, you know, stories, legends that had arisen in, uh, in you know, Celtic environments, things like that. I loved that. But here's, here's a for instance. The writers of the Gospels, that would be the first four books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they take great pains to place the events that they are writing about in the realm of history. For instance, the, the one that we read from this morning, the Gospel of Luke, he begins it by, by basically placing everything that happened within the reign of not just a Caesar, that would be, that would be big, wow, this happened during the reign of this Caesar, but this Caesar... And this governor, when this dude was over this sub-region within that, it's basically like, I know that this happened in this frame of reference, so you know now that this is not a, a timeless tale. This is something that happened like two years ago. Now, for Luke, it would have been a little more, but you get the point. When the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, that letter that I read from when we were, as a matter of fact, it's the same letter that I'm going to reference here in a second, when we were doing the commissioning, when he wrote 1 Corinthians and he talks about the, the resurrection of Jesus, he says, look, this guy appeared. He appeared to these people, and then these people, and then more than 400 more of these people, and if you don't believe me, go fact check me, because half those people are still alive. You don't do that with legends. No one did that with Hercules, Right? Like, Hercules killed the Hydra. And that dude over there remembers, if you want to go ask him. Like, nobody did that. It's a timeless tale. In the terms of the New Testament documents, the vast majority of scholars, and by that I mean people that aren't trying to just get a PhD by writing something controversial, the vast, overwhelming majority of scholars of the New Testament, Christian and non-Christian, would say that the documents that we have, the vast majority of the New Testament documents, were completed within 40 years of Jesus' death. In other words, within the lifetime of the people who saw it. The letters of Paul, between 20 and 30 years. The Gospels, shortly thereafter. In other words, if you know anything about legends, you know they take lots of time to develop. The telephone game, right, happens over long periods of time. Not 20 years. Especially when there are people who are around who could debunk them if they were legends. But one of the things that makes the legend theory so easy for us, if we're being honest, is that we all believe, all of us, believe that ancient people were stupid. Right? We believe that ancient people believed stupid things, like fairies, which they didn't, by the way. That's why they were called legends. (laughs) Stories that they told their kids before Xbox, right? Because you had to do something to keep them busy. We read a story in the Gospels about a kid who was said to have a demon. We think ancient people are so stupid. That kid had epilepsy. Can't you see he's having a seizure? Okay. People in first century Judea who were speaking this kind of Greek, they had a word for epilepsy. Now, did they know how it happens and the brain chemistry that makes it work? No, but they knew what it was. And the word they used for that kid wasn't that word. There was a difference between what was happening there and what they said or what, people, what we often think they assumed it was. Or we think, you know, of course they believe Jesus rose from the dead. Ancient people believed lots of stupid things. The problem with that is that the Apostle Paul 
goes to Athens, and he's talking to the intellectuals of his day, and when he mentions the resurrection of the dead, they laugh him out of the room, because ancient people know dead people don't get up. They're not stupid. We call that historical arrogance. We're so much smarter than everyone who's ever come before us. Come on, guys. The last historical thing uh, is not so much the history that the Bible teaches as it is the history of the Bible coming together. Because in the early 2000s, we all read the Da Vinci Code or saw Tom Hanks in the movie. And so we know that the New Testament came about because Constantine forced some books on us and not others to, to kind of reinforce his oppressive regime. Frankly, that's just historically untenable. No serious historian, Christian or not, believes that. These alternative Christianities and alternative Gospels that you can find by the truckload in Books a Million and Barnes and Noble present such a different faith and are so late historically that it would be like making the claim that Major League Baseball in 1939 kind of suppressed the fact that the Dallas Cowboys were in the running for the MLB pennant. And you go, the Cowboys play football. And they didn't even come into existence until 1960. Exactly. The same thing. We're talking hundreds of years after Jesus, these, these alternative things were written, and they're not even the same faith. Completely different. So we have, we have to maybe reconsider our historical assumptions. Uh, the majority of questions today, though, they're not historical. If we're being honest, most of us don't have the time to do the work of history. Uh, and those aren't even the ones that we seem to have a problem with anymore. Because the cultural questions are far easier. It's like low-hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is that the Bible seems to support things that we find culturally problematic. Or even dangerous. Right? I mean, what's the most that you hear today? The Bible teaches that uh, slavery is okay. Right? We hear that all the time. Uh, the Bible teaches that uh, the Bible teaches a repressive sexuality. The Bible teaches the subjugation of women, or that it glorifies violence. In other words, and I know we wouldn't put it this way, but this is what we mean: we can't believe the Bible because some of the things it says are so distasteful to us. Now, of course, the problem is is that on the other side, we tend to argue for kind of a moral relativism that says that all beliefs are okay, and then say, but we can't possibly believe this one because we don't think those beliefs are okay. Relativism is fine so long as it doesn't offend us. And then we're caught. Now, there are a few ways that I would want to encourage you, if this is where you're at this morning, uh, just to think about this. The first is that the Bible, I'm not going to deny that there are troubling things culturally to us in the scriptures. There are. But the Bible is fundamentally different than every other religious text in that it tells a story. A story, right? Um, Islam isn't telling a story. It's giving you laws that you need to be in subjection to. Buddhism isn't telling you a story. It's giving you axioms that hopefully you can get to nirvana with, which, by the way, isn't heaven. It's non-existence. Who wants to go there? Uh, um, Some people, I guess. But the Bible is a story, which means that, as a story, it's not necessarily affirming everything it's telling you. For instance, every so-called hero in the Bible, minus Jesus, is deeply flawed. 
And again, if that's news to you, it's probably because you haven't read the books. Abraham, the father of the Old Testament faith, prostituted his wife out to the king of Egypt so he wouldn't die. What? Moses was a murderer before he became a prophet. And I don't even want to start with David. I don't want to start. Deeply flawed human beings, every one of them. And so, before you judge the Bible, because it talks about X, make sure that it's saying that X is a good thing. Because not everything it talks about is it saying is a good thing. It's telling a story. Second, just as much as we need to beware of historical arrogance, we need to beware of cultural arrogance. We use words like progressive and regressive, right? But to say that something is regressive assumes that our culture has progressed to a place where everything we disagree with is a backward step. Right? It assumes that we have this distance to be able to judge what is, what is ultimately good and right. And that every culture, historically and currently, that disagrees with all our culture is wrong. They are regressive. And we have the, the uh, objectivity to see that we, amongst all the cultures of the world and throughout time, are progressive. If that was someone you worked with saying that about everyone that they worked with, you'd go, that is the most arrogant dude I've ever heard in my life. But when we say it as a culture, and we're culturally insular, no one's there to say, dude, that's arrogant. Because we all agree. Cultural blind spot. Lastly, this idea of cultural, these cultural objections, frankly, um, Again, we don't say this, but this is the case. They assume that because we don't like something, it can't be true. I don't like that. Therefore, it's false. I actually think that's actually more to the point than we'd like to admit. And I'm going to speak to this more in a minute. So let me just leave that there for you to stew on that for a second. Now I want to reconsider the point, though, because... Since Christianity rises or falls on Jesus, right? Which it does, by the way. It rises or falls on Jesus, not necessarily... Well, it rises or falls on Jesus. I don't want to overspeak and create more questions. Because of that, I think it would be helpful to engage in how he viewed the Bible. So let's go back to the scripture scripture passage I read earlier in Luke's Gospel. Now, if you're not familiar with Luke... um, I think he'd fit in rather well here, given the majority of us in this room. Not everyone, but the majority of us. Um, he was an early, early, early convert to Christianity. Okay? Um, he wrote two of the books of the Bible. He wrote the gospel that bears his name, Luke. And then he wrote another book called Acts. And from what we can tell, from what um, not only he says about himself, which, of course, none of us would believe that if it were just that, but also from the style with which he wrote, we know that he was a highly educated individual. And he wrote his gospel and Acts explicitly, like saying, I sat down to make a reasonable account of the events that happened. In other words, I'm writing history. I have gone to sources, including eyewitnesses, to create this. And then he writes. And as we pick up here, Jesus has been killed. 
He's risen from the grave. Not everyone gets that yet, right? That's the whole point. Not everyone's getting that. And so two of his disciples, one of them named Clopas, we don't know the other's name, they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk. They're walking and talking about what's gone on, and Jesus comes up to them. Now, we're told that they don't recognize Jesus, or that their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And so he plays dumb, and he's like, what's going on? And they tell him uh, that they had hoped that Jesus would be the dude who would fulfill the story of the Old Testament and bring about redemption. But of course, he couldn't be, because he died, which is what all of Jesus' followers at the time were thinking. There's no way this guy could be the guy we thought he was, because he died. Then, of course, they said that some of the women had said they saw him, but can't believe them. They're women. And I know some of you are like, what? That is what that passage says for those who have ears to hear in the first century. And Jesus rebukes them. Look down at verse 25. Foolish ones, slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And skip down to verse 27. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, There's a ton we could say here, but just because I'm afraid that some of you may have already gotten hung up culturally on the fact that I said that these guys can't believe the women because they're women, I want you to recognize the fact. You're like, see, this proves everything I've ever believed about Christianity. Accept that. The book doesn't change the story. The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus are always presented as women. So culturally, they go, their their testimony is inadmissible in court. And Jesus goes, not in my court. Christianity teaches a completely different and and culture-shifting paradigm that begins its work right here, okay? Let me make a couple of points about this. First, we need to understand that Jesus is basically telling these guys, you don't get it, and you've never gotten it. He's rebuking them. When he says foolish ones, you don't have... Stoic, passive Jesus. Oh, foolish ones, to believe all that. He's he's rebuking them. Fools. How did you not see this? How did you not see this coming? And second, as he's rebuking them, he mentions Moses and the prophets. Now, to us, that doesn't mean much. uh, Because we know about, some of us, if we've been raised in the church, we know who Moses is. And the prophets, I mean, we kind of get that. But if you're a first century Jew, to say Moses and the prophets, what, what is meant is your Bible. Right? Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are understood as the books of Moses. Okay? That's how you've, you talked about them. You're, these are the books of Moses. Everything else is the prophets. Historical books through the prophets, these are the prophets, because prophets wrote them. Okay? Uh, and so, what Jesus is saying is, you guys have not gotten your Bibles. You didn't get it. Now, here's the part that's going to probably blow your mind. He tells them they haven't gotten the Bible because they didn't realize that it is about him. You see that? Because some of you are probably like, what? I thought it was about rules. And I thought it was about stories of people that we're supposed to emulate. No, no, no. First and foremost, the Bible is a story about the world, about its problem, and about God's solution to that problem, Jesus. All the laws, all the stories, Jesus is claiming point to him and what he did. Now, does that mean that every word, every phrase is ultimately some kind of code for Jesus? No. 
saying that the theme of the story that finds its, its, its uh, resolution is in Jesus. And here's how. Look at verse 26. He says, was it not necessary? Necessary. Not a good idea. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? What Jesus is saying here is the Bible is a story about a broken world that needs a redeemer who will fix it. And it finds its resolution in what Jesus did. Some of you all are, you know, I've only been back two weeks, but you're probably already sick of hearing me say this. The Bible at the core is a story about how God made the world and he made us to be in relationship with him in it. But that we betrayed him. We, tur- we didn't break a rule. We broke our relationship with him. That's, that's what sin is. It's not fundamentally about breaking curfew. It would be like telling your mom and dad, I hate you, I've never liked you, and you've never done anything good for me, and so I'm leaving you, and I will never see you again. I wish you were dead. That's what sin is. And we, we turn from him by seeking to be independent of him. Seek our value, our worth, our meaning, to be able to figure out right and wrong for ourselves, because we could do that on our own, even though we were made for him to be that for us. And so when we betrayed him, that brought guilt, which you get, right? Because you've been betrayed. You know how that works. But it also broke us so that now we are by nature stuck in our independence from God. And so the Bible, the whole of the Bible, and and frankly, all of that takes place in the first three chapters. The whole of the rest of the Bible is God working out his promise to fix that situation. That is why every so-called hero in the Bible is deeply flawed. Because they, just like you and me, need God to rescue them. If instead God gave us heroes and said, go be like them, what it says is, you can make yourself better. Just go slay your giants like David did. Just go do your thing. As long as you have the right rules, you can make it better. Except that part of the story of the Bible is how they had the perfect rules, the right rules, and they still messed it up. Just like you and I do. We don't need rules. We need a rescuer. And so Jesus came to live the life reflected in that law, to do that in our place, and to die to bear the weight of our betrayal of God. That is the point of the Bible. That is the central theme. Is it the only theme? No. Does the Bible have something to say about morality? Absolutely. Does it have something? To, does it have principles upon which we can then look and see how should a society that is just function? Absolutely. But the point of the scriptures is the work of Jesus. And the rest of that stems out from there. And that leads me to ask if we can reconsider the center. Okay? Listen to me. I know know what some of of us in this room are thinking. Some of us, whether we're non-Christians or whether we're Christians and just don't like to talk about the Bible because we're troubled by it. We're thinking, I can't believe the Bible. It teaches creationism. Or it teaches this repressive sexual ethics. Or, or it teaches slavery or gender roles. Or it's anti-science. Or it, or it promotes genocide. Are you honestly saying that you can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because of what Leviticus says about sex? Really? That seems weird. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be okay with all of those things right now. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, let's wrestle with the core and work out from there, right? 
Don't reject Christianity and its historical claims. And don't, don't misunderstand. The core claims of Christianity are about something that happened in history. Don't reject those things because you don't like some of the other things that are said. That's like denying the existence of a tree because you don't like the color the leaves change in the fall. I prefer maple red, not yellow. That tree no longer exists to me. Come on, man. That's silly. Now, don't check out on me. We're almost done. I know it's hard, but listen. If Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus is who he says he is, then frankly, it doesn't matter whether I like what he said about sex or greed or even forgiveness. I have to make a decision about what to do with him. Like I said, I'm not asking you to buy into everything right now. I'm not even uh, coming to you and saying, oh, don't worry, you'll get it all at some point, right? Some of us are going to carry those doubts for a long time. What I'm saying, what I'm asking, is for you to reconsider the central teaching of the Bible, the thread that runs from the very beginning through the very end that culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then to view the rest of the Bible through that. Okay? Now, some of you are thinking, it's hard because you're wrestling with what I just said, but you're like, Rick, I can never believe in a God that would say these things that I don't like. That's fair, kind of. But let me warn you, If God can never contradict you, you are your God. If you refuse to worship anything that that disagrees with you, you will only and ever worship yourself. I said a few minutes ago that the Bible is fundamentally different than any other religious text. And it is so because it makes a claim about something that happened, right? In Islam, it doesn't matter when it was that, that Muhammad went into the cave to receive the revelation that he got and the rules that he got. All that matters is if whether or not you obey those rules and submit to them, right? In Buddhism, it doesn't really matter what, where it was that Buddha uh, transcended under that tree that he was under when he, when he finally and fully transcended. It only matters whether or not you follow the axioms that he teaches so that you can. Christianity is fundamentally about God acting to rescue us in Jesus because we are powerless to rescue ourselves. And so to refuse to engage in the historical claims that the Bible makes regarding those events because you don't like something that's that's said in there is no different than saying, because the Bible says it, I refuse to believe it. And that settles it. Sounds an awful lot like fundamentalism, and I know you hate fundamentalism, but it sounds an awful lot like it. If the claims are false, who cares what it says about money or sex? Who cares? Doesn't matter. If the claims are true, then we have a God who sees us for who we are, who knows the same thing about you that you know about you, that you're not enough. and yet loves us enough to rescue us. A God who doesn't wait for us to get our act together, but actually comes to us. Which means that I think that's worth reconsidering. Would you pray with me? Lord, no matter where we are this morning, we need your grace. Some of us in this room, um, 
followers of Jesus and we have walked with him. Uh, we, we love the word, although if we're being honest, we skip over those parts that do trouble us because we just don't know what to do with them. Others of us are here and we, we've never even really picked up the book uh, because we've been told what it says and it troubles us. Most of us are probably somewhere in the middle. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us with your grace to show us the central theme of this, of this Bible, of this book, is that you rescue a broken world. That you take betrayers and you make them children. You don't just pardon us, but you give us a kingdom to be heirs of. And Lord, for those of us here who don't believe that, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that they should want to. Because there is no other God like that. You are amazing. And so we ask your grace upon us. You would drive these things into our hearts and let us live them out in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.